So this morning I would like to talk a little bit about approaching the hindrances. And I think any human being is it too loud? Okay. Any human being who's ever sat down to meditate, who's ever tried walking up and down mindfully, uh, sooner or later, and probably sooner rather than later, is going to encounter one or more of these hindrances. Uh, it's going, it's going, they're going to be uh, qualities, realities that we run into. Now, that meditator may not recognize them as such, may not use that language of hindrances, but they're going to be aspects of our of our experience. And they have been around uh, just about as long as people have been trying to do this kind of stuff. So as a teaching, it predates the Buddha. Uh, the Buddha was not the first person, I, I doubt very much, to come up with this concept of the hindrances. Uh, so thousands and thousands of years that this has been uh, going on, this has been taught. So many of you will be familiar already with the hindrances, but I want to, it's, it's really worth going into this stuff again and again. I want to explore a little bit from a few different angles and offer some approaches. So just to run through, there are classically five hindrances, and in the usual order that they're given, uh, Craving for sense pleasures is the fir- is the first one. The mind is locked, is kind of um, hooked into uh, a desire for some some or other sense pleasure. Second one is aversion or ill will, and again the mind feels trapped, sort of rattling around uh, in relationship to something or someone or some aspect of our experience or ourselves with aversion, with ill will, with hatred, with a knee-jerk kind of wanting to get rid of and destroy. The third is uh, often called sloth and torpor. So these are oldie, Englishy words. And uh, basically means sleepiness, dullness, drowsiness, heaviness of mind, that kind of, uh, that kind of mind state. Fourth one is restlessness and the mind feeling either very agitated with thought, sometimes also connected with guilt and worry, uh, worry about the future or guilt about the past, but oftentimes not that, really just uh, spinning around with thought, obsessing, and the body too feeling restless, feeling it's very hard to sit still. The last one is doubt. The mind vacillating and feeling uh, stuck, really, uh, with doubt. So I'll, I'll come come back to those in more detail and offer a lot of suggestions. But actually, first, what I want to do is step right back, take a big step backwards and a kind of overview and say some general things about meditation. So there are many, many possible views of what meditation is. There are many 
possible views of what meditation is and there are many existing views of what meditation is. Some of those views of what meditation is are, are simply not helpful and some are helpful. Now, it is, it is the case that, or it's rather not the case, that only one view of meditation is helpful. It's actually, it's not just the case that there's only one right way of seeing what meditation is. But one view that I want to pick up in this talk and elaborate on a little bit is the view, the way of seeing meditation as meditation practice being an art, the art of meditation. And as such, I I would say that any art, a significant component, aspect of any art is the aspect of craft or skill. So that view, meditation is art involving craft and skill. For example, a painter, an artist who's a painter, a lot of, uh, go, a lot of skills uh, go into that craft. A person needs to understand about composition, about color combination, about brush technique, about different kinds of brushes, different kinds of materials, canvases, all, all, all this kind of stuff. A writer writing a novel or a poem. Uh, a footballer, same. So as I say that, just a quest, just a, something to offer out. How does that sit with you? How does that sit with you? <laughs> you can see some people shaking their head. Remember, this is one view I'm exploring in this talk, and I'm not saying it's the only view, but I want to I want to explore it in this talk. Uh, I'm aware, and it's interesting who's here and not who's not here, because I'm aware of the people that I know, different people's practices. And some people would not even come to the talk because, uh, etc. But anyway, uh, just, so, just to be aware of what the reaction is to that. Now, d- there are going to be different reactions. Possible to feel overwhelmed by such a view. Ugh, so much to develop, so much to learn, so much to learn. Possible also to feel very relieved by such a view. It's like if a skill is part of it, if craft is part of it, it means that me, little old me, can develop it. It means there is the possibility of development. You understand? If it's a skill, skill was a word the, the Buddha was very fond of using in relation to practice. If it's a skill, it means I can practice it and develop it rather than. Uh, there's nowhere to move, there's no, there's no possibility of development. So it could be that there's relief in, in relationship to that. But here's something I want to throw, throw out as for something for everyone to reflect on, and it's a question. How am I viewing meditation? Okay? It sounds, it's one of these questions that sounds so innocent and so innocuous and so like, pff, whatever. It's massively significant. And important, I think, for us to reflect on. How am I viewing meditation? The way I view meditation is not insignificant, is not neutral. It's going to have massive effects. Everything affects everything else. The way I see meditation practice is something that enters into then the whole realm of my experience and has its effects. So if I'm not aware of actually how I'm seeing it, then I'm unaware of something very significant that's affecting the whole process. Uh, 
This is just something to take away and reflect on. How am I viewing meditation practice? How am I seeing meditation? So in this talk, a little bit emphasizing the angle of the art and the skill and the craft. And that means nuts and bolts of meditation technique and practice. And in that, through that, a kind of refinement, a refinement of our craft, a refinement of the skill. And a a subtlety, that there's a subtlety that can come into this over time with development. Now, sometimes uh, people might be tempted to put another view of meditation kind of in opposition to this view. I'm not even sure that it needs to be in opposition, but tempting to put it in opposition. And that view would be practice as just being. I'm just being and letting letting be. Or practice is a kind of non-doing. It's a non-doing. What I'm doing is getting out of the way and non-doing. And with that, there is a kind of suspicion or fear that if I enter into practice as a doer, then that will that doing will build the self, will build the sense of self, and the movement of meditation should be away from the sense of self. And here I am doing in meditation and building a sense of self. Is this making sense? Yeah. So there's a, a fear is a strong word. There's a concern that the self will be born and encouraged as as doer to take birth the self as doer or as meditator. Now there's definitely something to that, absolutely something to that. And it's an important point and it needs investigation. But just also to say, however we view meditation, however we go, whatever practice we choose, whatever technique, whatever approach, etc., all of them, each one, there's not one excluded, not one approach or view excluded that doesn't have its its particular potential pitfalls. Whatever it is, however we're seeing it, it will have its particular potential pitfalls. Just in this room, there are people approaching practice very different ways, and that's actually a lovely part of what Guy House is. But each one has its potential pitfalls. Do we know what the potential pitfalls of the particular way I'm practicing is? Am I interested in that? I need to be interested in that. If I am going for the non-doing... Is it possible that letting go of doing too early in the practice, too early, might just uh, shore us up on a kind of default uh, doing that's actually just more subtle than we've got an awareness to see? So we're, we just land with a kind of default doing that we're not aware that it's going on. We don't have the subtlety to see the more... Uh, the refinement to see the more subtle doing in the practice, uh, subtle doing in, in existence, actually. There might be that actually engaging in doing and letting that process refine, refining the doing, letting that become very subtle, it might be that there's something in playing with doing, playing with it the way we play with plasticine or a kid plays with a toy, that we actually understand doing through playing with doing. We understand it deeper and deeper and deeper. In order to fully let go of doing and fully let go of the self, we need to understand doing fully. So, 
I don't want to make a blanket statement, this or that. Um, I just want to highlight something that I think really needs a lot of, a lot of real honest uh, reflection with a lot of integrity to it, a lot of openness of view. Aryadeva, one of the great Mahayana teachers, said one of the three qualities of a good student is open-mindedness. Just, uh. So, these hindrances... Um, they're not just confined to concentration practice. We might feel I'm trying to do work with the breath, or I'm trying to sweep the body, or I'm trying to do loving-kindness practice. They actually uh, come up whenever. So we could have a very open awareness practice, and just sitting and just being with the openness, the lovely openness of awareness. Hindrances will still arise within that practice. They actually arise in our everyday life as we're walking down the street, as we're going to work, as we're resting at home. They're a part of being human. And it's not that we come to meditation and we suddenly see something different. And that's not the case at all. It might just be that we just notice them more. We're just more aware. So here's another question. And uh, it's not necessarily a simple question, but when is it enough? When is it enough just to know that a hindrance is present? When is it enough just for the simple knowing that a hindrance is present? So sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, but the question is when is it enough? Knowing mindfulness, awareness, attention, consciousness are actually not the object of meditation. They're not the object of meditation. That's not the reason uh, that we're meditating. From the Buddha's point of view, we actually need to understand suffering. And particularly, we need to understand the hindrances in this context. And, he goes on to say, we need to understand how to free ourselves from the hindrances. So, in the Satipatthana Sutta, which I'm sure uh, Christine or Yana have probably mentioned already, it's, the, it's the, the discourse of the Buddha that insight meditation is sort of the most central discourse of the Buddha for insight meditation tradition. He talks about the hindrances in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And he talks, for instance, when he's talking about sloth and torpor, and he says very clearly... The, the practitioner, he or she, discerns how there is the abandoning of sloth and torpor once it has arisen. How there is the abandoning of sloth and torpor once they're arisen. In other words, it's not just a neutral, oh, there's sloth and torpor. It's not just a neutral awareness. In other instances, quite a number of other instances, the Buddha uses the word liberation. Same word he uses for enlightenment. He uses the the word in different contexts and uses it a lot uh, in terms of liberating, being liberated, liberating oneself from the hindrances and really encouraging that to liberate oneself from the hindrances. And says, liberation from the hindrances is like you've been in jail You've been in jail with these forces and these energies and feel constricted and bound by them. You've been in jail and there's one day someone comes and turns the lock of the cell and, and you walk out and you're free. 
That's liberation from the hindrances. Or you've been in debt, uh, massively in debt in your life, and the day comes when the debt's paid off. You're free of debt, free of debt. Or um, you've been in hospital with a very serious illness, a life-threatening illness, and long recuperation, the day comes, and you, you, you're better. And the, the, the relief of that. Or, Buddha's last example, a dangerous journey through a wilderness where there are bandits and wild animals, etc. In those times, you know, vast areas were, were like that. And you reach the end of your destination, you're safe. So all, all of that is, uh, he equates with liberation from the hindrances. So this aspect of kind of mindfulness and when is knowing enough, etc., it's, it's a very interesting question. We might add another question, which is, what is with mindfulness? What is with the knowing? So when there's awareness, when there's attention and mindfulness, there's always, always, always factors with the knowing. Mindfulness, we might like to think of it, or awareness or attention, as something kind of that can exist in purity just by itself. It actually can't. And there are always factors that are kind of wound around and wrapped up with the knowing, with the mindfulness. And the question is, what are those factors and what are they doing? Does that make sense? So for example, uh, let's take sloth and torpor again. I, I can be, here I am, and there's dullness, etc. There can be mindfulness there. But it may be that very subtly wrapped up with the mindfulness is just a little bit of aversion, just a little bit of wanting to push it away, wanting to get rid of it, not liking it, judging oneself for it, or any of those, any or all of that. And so with the mindfulness that sloth and torpor is present, there are other factors, and for instance, the factor of aversion. That factor of aversion is going to have an influence. And the influence it will have is that it will increase, it will build the sloth and torpor. Again, it's not a neutral factor. Why does it do that? Because actually, aversion turns out to be a part of sloth and torpor. We tend to think of them as separate hindrances. Very interesting, when there's sloth and torpor and tiredness, pay attention to what the actual experience is. See if you can separate out the, re- the reaction to the experience, the relationship to it, and see how the aversion is actually building the sloth and torpor. So if the aversion is present anyway in my awareness without me realizing it, it's building the thing. And I think I'm just, being, I'm just sitting here being mindful. I'm just sitting here and everything's in awareness. Not so, not so. Okay, so from this perspective, I want to, and remember, it's just one perspective, and I just want to throw out a lot of possibilities, a lot of um, possible uh, ways of approaching to, to liberate ourselves from the hindrances, to abandon uh, the hindrances. Now, I'm quite aware this might feel like a barrage of information, and that's... Uh, Hopefully just okay. You know, you'll pick up what you need to. You can always come and ask again in an interview if, if it's something you miss. And just to be aware, there's a lot of people in the room and different people are going to be uh, picking up different things.
So I'm going to take them in a different order, actually in the order of probably what's most common. And the most common one is sloth and torpor. That's actually the most common hindrance. Very, very common. How do we know when it's the hindrance of sloth and torpor and it's not just tiredness? Especially at the beginning of retreat, people coming with busyness and a backlog of tiredness and work. Well, one way is that it mysteriously and quite quickly vanishes at lunch. The lunch bell goes and the idea, lunch, food, great. And somehow the mind just brightens and is, is uh, uh, suddenly awake. Real tiredness might be more uh, of a constant kind of weight through the day that's not really influenced too much by the idea of ah, freedom from meditation. Okay, so what possible approaches can, can we have? First one, there are actually ten for sloth and torpor. So first one, reaffirming the uprightness of the posture. So you, everyone knows this. As sloth and torpor begins to come, come the head begin to almost you know, uh, lean on the floor for support with the forehead. Um, and that can be just a little bit, but do, it does something to just reaffirm the uprightness of the posture. So the mind conditions the body. So when the mind is slothful, the body loses its tone. And the body conditions the mind. Mind conditions body, body conditions mind. Like all things, they feed each other. And so that means, one of the things, is that we can just reaffirm the uprightness of the posture. And uh, that, that helps. Second one is not being afraid to use your imagination. And Im- if you've got a visual imagination, just imagine a bright white light, like the sun, in the middle of your head or the middle of your body, or sitting inside a sun like that. And really... Um, just paying attention to that and feeling that sort of uh, dissolve the cobwebs. Third one, uh, paying more attention to the in-breath. So you could say almost inherently the in-breath is energizing. We literally take in oxygen uh, into the into the blood into the blood when we breathe in. Something's happening that the body itself is getting oxygenated and energized with the in-breath. Little more attention to the in-breath and you'll actually begin to notice the in-breath has a felt quality. We can feel it in the body of feeling energized. You can actually feel that being energized by the in-breath. And if you pay attention to that, the energy can begin to lift just by tuning into that energy. Fourth one, not being afraid to really spend some time breathing long and slow breaths, long and slow, and really, again, oxygenating the whole body, energizing the whole body, whether we think of it in you know, Western biological terms or sort of more in terms of chi or prana. The, the body is definitely energized by long, slow breathing. So your neighbor doesn't even have to recognize that this is going on. It's not hyperventilating, but really energizing the system. When we get uh, a mindset of sloth and torpor, there's actually a contraction that comes into the mind space. So it can be very helpful to sort of open up the awareness to include the whole body. This is number five, the whole body. And there's a sort of more spaciousness to the awareness that works uh, in the opposite direction of the natural contraction that's part of sloth and torpor. 
you can further that even more by opening the eyes and particularly if you want to opening the eyes and really taking in a sense of space so this room is a lovely uh, big room as I said, when, when there's sloth and torpor, something happens. almost like, think about when we go to bed at night. We kind of curl up physically. And the mind, too, also kind of contracts and curls up. So as you open the eyes and take in the space of the room, that space actually allows the mind space to expand. And it's the opposite movement, again, of this kind of hunching up that happens in sloth and torpor. Seventh one is just standing up. If you're sitting, if you're doing sitting meditation, just stand up. Um, I've only ever known one person to fall asleep when they're standing up, and they had been a monastery in Thailand, meditating nonstop, night and day for three days and three nights. And on the third night, they were standing meditation. They just started to keel over, <laughs> and they said they fell asleep but woke up before they hit the ground. So the mind just knows it's not a very good idea right now. You're also really doing a favor to everyone else in here. Uh, it has a stigma to stand up, and it shouldn't. Why should it? You're just showing uh, that you're kind of responding skillfully to, to these energies. Okay, eighth one is when you do the walking meditation, really briskly up and down. Really, really again, invigorate the body by walking briskly. Ninth one, make sure you get enough exercise during the day. So go for a walk, do some yoga, do some tai chi, qigong, go for a run if you want. Whatever it is, really um, let that be part of of energizing the system. Sometimes on retreat, the energies can get a bit stagnant, a bit heavy, and then we sink. Last one, tenth one. Sometimes with this hindrance, it's actually the case that there is something difficult in the sort of at the edges of our consciousness that we'd rather not deal with. Oftentimes, a difficult emotion, maybe some grief, maybe some anger, maybe some fear, some sadness. And it's just kind of there at the edges, but we just don't want to deal with it. So the mind kind of automatically goes into a bit of a shutdown mode. Just, or just, I'll just hunch up and kind of ignore everything. So it's worth kind of just opening and just checking very gently, very lightly, is there something around that I'm kind of really trying to avoid? Okay, so that's Loth and Torpa. Restlessness, uh, the second most common one. Six possibilities. Being the body really still, making making a kind of gentle but firm commitment to really keep the body still. The impulse is so much to move uh, with with restlessness, so much to want to move, and just keeping it still. Also, interestingly, keeping the eyes still. So even when we have the eyes shut, there can be the kind of, this kind of darting movement of the um, what are they called the uh, eyeballs, and. Usually when there's a lot of thought and restlessness, the eyeballs, even with the eyes closed, are moving quite a lot. And so just to make that, see if you can, gentle, firm commitment, to keep as much stillness as possible. But 
in a very as much as possible relaxed space that's really really key with restlessness you go to the body and just relax the body so there's this combination of relaxation and stillness very very uh, important with sloth and torpor I'm saying the in breath is naturally is organically energizing the out breath you can pay attention to this the out breath is naturally organically relaxing there's a natural letting go with the out breath again tuning into that quality of relaxation with the out breath can, can soften uh, the restlessness Sometimes when there's restlessness, all the energy feels like it's going up and bubbling around in the head and boiling around in the head. Sometimes just to bring the attention down low in the body, say the belly or sense of contact, it really helps bring the attention down low in the body. If you're doing a concentration practice like uh, working with the breath or, or loving kindness, really, really helpful to just keep coming back but watch out that attention doesn't creep in to that. That there's just this coming back and just this coming back and just this coming back. Really, really trusting that. Really trusting it. The last one is actually, again, using this sense of spaciousness. So really, really opening up the awareness and in encouraging, opening to a sense of spaciousness in the meditation... You can use sounds to help establish that. Right now the birds are uncharacteristically quiet. But just opening up the awareness to include sound allows the spaciousness to come in. And that can have a kind of sense of that spaciousness of awareness, kind of accommodating experience. It's almost as if all the experience is happening within that awareness just coming and going and arising and passing and in particular paying within that spaciousness being aware of the physical kind of um, little explosions of the feelings of restlessness little pockets of these uh, pins and needles of restlessness impulses to move they kind of explode in the body just letting them, letting them explode in this more accommodating awareness. Just letting them be there. There's this explosion. There's that explosion. And you're just kind of really relaxing in relationship to them in the space. Allowing them to be there. Allowing them to be there. A lot in, in the sense of allowing at a very physical level. That's really going to make a difference with that. Okay, Southern Torpor, Restlessness. Uh, craving for sense pleasure is is uh, the next one. Now this is interesting. Sometimes we don't even see that it's going on because we don't call it that. And what comes up is the thought, I need something or other. It has that language of need. And we kind of convince ourselves of the truth of that. No, I need whatever it is. So possible approaches here... One is to actually take tune in. How how do you actually feel when when that energy is around? When there's this craving for sense pleasure, how does it actually feel? 
And sometimes we can get lost in fantasy and there's a kind of pleasantness to it. But really give it some good attention. How does it feel? And ask. Feel into that. And, and inquire. Is it a happy state? Is it happy to be craving sense pleasure? Is it happy? Just to be really, really clear about that. Second, what is lacking? Asking oneself, in this moment, is there anything really lacking? In this moment, in the nature of things, is there anything really lacking? So that craving for sense desire is being supported by something. It's like all things, like all suffering, it's being supported by views and assumptions. And really to ask, is there anything actually really lacking in this moment? Sometimes, third possibility, sometimes just re, uh, re-establishing a closeness to the meditation object. Just, just really uh, becoming more intimate with the meditation object. And, I would say, seeing if it's possible to begin to find, to begin to tune in to some enjoyment in the meditation. Is it possible something among the strands of experience of what's going on actually feels enjoyable? That there's some element in the the experience of meditation in the moment that feels enjoyable. Is it possible that one can pick up on that? In the long run, this is the thing that's going to make the most difference. This is the thing. And there's a movement towards a deeper nourishment that the being, the heart, is uh, opening through practice, long term, long term, through deeper so- to, to deeper sources of nourishment in life. So that this little sense pleasure actually begins to pale in comparison. That's, for almost everyone, that's a gradual movement. We begin to see this thing, okay, whatever it is, it's just, it's just not got that same depth of nourishing the heart, nourishing the being, as the kind of enjoyment that's available in practice, in a sense of love of the Dharma, of, com- of uh, community, of being here, of the teachings, of uh, nature. Something about reorienting our sense of nourishment that ends up being immensely significant, the most key thing. And we begin to wean ourselves off the lesser, uh, kind of less fulfilling pleasures in life. We wean ourselves because we actually have something much more beautiful and much more fulfilling. That's gradual, but that's definitely a promise of the Dharma. Sometimes this craving for sense pleasure, of course, uh, for us being human, takes the form of sexual fantasy. Uh, very, very normal and uh, very uh, typical. It's interesting what happens with uh, what most human beings do when sexual images or sexual thoughts comes up, come up, uh, sexual fantasy comes up. Oftentimes, uh, we either there's a reaction of suppression or shame, or we get hooked into it, dragged into it on the level of the fantasy, on the level of the mental uh, imagery and activity. 
This is very normal. And oftentimes what happens with that is there's a kind of disconnection from the bodily energies. We get, we're too caught in the, in the fantasy, in the imagery, in the mental activity. What would it be? Sexual image comes up, sexual fantasy comes up, sexual thought comes up. That we actually really go to the body and really inhabit the body and have a real fullness there with the, the movement of sexual energy in the body and a real allowing of that sexual energy, which actually is just life energy, nothing, you know, this beautiful part of being human can be allowed to move, can actually even enjoy it, actually feels pleasant. The danger is when we get just locked and just spinning and spinning and snowballing in a way in, in the fantasy, or uh, there's shame and suppression. So, to experiment. Okay, so often Torpa restless is craving aversion, aversion, very common. All of these, uh, there's a whole spectrum to them of, of sort of uh, coarseness and subtlety. So, for example, with aversion, it can be complete rage, complete rage. It can be uh, anywhere from complete rage to just a little bit of irritability. Anywhere along that spectrum. Even more subtle. Fear is actually a manifestation of aversion. Judgment. Judging ourselves, judging others, judging the way things get done here. Judgment is a manifestation of aversion. Boredom. Boredom is a manifestation of aversion. It's much more subtle. Body pain, interestingly. Sometimes we sit and the body just is just achy. It just can't seem to get it right. And oftentimes it's the actual pain is, is it's not really that the body is, is um, uncomfortable in itself. It's more that the aversion is kind of making it that way. When there's aversion, actually when there's all these interests, when there's aversion, there's a contraction to consciousness. Consciousness is contracted. When the hindrances are there, consciousness is contracted. So one of the uh, sort of starting places with aversion is really to just relax physically. Relax physically. So really relax the whole body. Because the contraction comes into the mind and it seeps into the body. The body reflecting the mind. Just relax physically. And then some, asking some questions can be really helpful. There's a version, there's this, we remember something someone said and the way they said it, or what a person is saying, or what something. And the mind just easily wants to bite it at getting hold of the aversion reaction, or just finds itself kind of following that train of aversive thinking and aversive reaction. You know, very normal. But sometimes kind of really being firm with oneself and asking, is this taking me where I want to go? Where do I want to go and is this taking me where I want to go? And another question, am I building something? Am I building something up out of proportion? So how often that happens with aversion. Something happens and we just shrink around it and then build it up, build it up. It seems so significant that this person shuffled or this person this or whatever. And we just 
somehow the whole situation has got contracted around something, giving something incredible significance and then building it up, building it up, just to ask, am I building something up out of proportion? Because that's what aversion does. And we actually need to understand the effects of what these factors do, aversion, craving, etc. Always feeling very free to to uh, switch or to take advantage of a loving-kindness practice. Something that can really uh, soften and warm and tenderize the, the inner environment. Really, really skillful. If you're, and no different people are doing different practices, if you're actually doing a loving-kindness practice as your main thing here, just to know that sometimes in the course of doing that practice, it will actually highlight aversion. Similarly, if you're doing a concentration practice, all these hindrances, they stand out in contrast. It's like, well, I'm interested in this, therefore, I'm interested in calmness, I'm interested in loving-kindness. The very fact of us being interested in loving-kindness and kindness, and loving-kindness and uh, calmness, concentration, will highlight the opposite. It will stand out to our attention even more. It's the way perception works. We see in terms of dualities. So just to know that if one is doing certain directed practices, it will highlight the hindrances. And that's okay. It's really okay. And sometimes it feels like we're going backwards. We're actually not. Again, with aversion. Really, really helpful sometimes to work with a very open awareness and a lot of space, particularly if it's very strong, just letting it be there as part of the space. Aversion contracts the mind space around something. This thing is a problem, it's a big deal. The mind just gets locked, shuttling back and forth on this one narrow track, wrapped around it, building it up, building up the self, building up the thing. Space. Space, open awareness, can be very, very skillful. Last hindrance is doubt. And can be doubt about anything, really, it's amazing. Can doubt the teachings, can doubt the teacher or teachers, you know, do they really know what they're talking about? Can doubt the self, probably the most common is doubting the self. Well, depends, but uh, can I do this? Will I be able to? Am I good enough? But everyone else can't, but I can. Uh, everyone else can, but I can't. Or doubting a particular practice. Well, should I be doing that or should I be doing this? Maybe it's better if I did that. Um, so very, very common. A distinction to be made. Questioning is good. I, I would say never to let go of the spirit of questioning. In, in our life and in our practice. It's such a part of our vitality as human beings, of our passion, of our intelligence, that we keep questioning alive. So that the, you know, our life and our practice are not just sort of passive, just sort of sitting there. But there's this quest- questioning is good, it's beautiful, it's really helpful. Questioning brings into the practice a sense of aliveness, a sense of vitality, a sense of passion, a sense of direction. Doubt, on the other hand, this is how you tell the difference, doubt brings a sense of paralysis. This or this, what should I do? And we we feel like we can't do anything or we're just stuck. So that's the difference between the hindrance of doubt and actually the 
I would say, beautiful quality of questioning and investigation. And sometimes it's important to ask questions. So that's one of the reasons why we're here as teachers. Come to the interviews and ask questions. You know, if I say something or one of us says something or you've heard something in a talk or the Buddha says something, it's like, that doesn't really make sense to me. That doesn't, or I disagree or that doesn't really fit together for me. Bring that. Bring that. And, and, and clarify. Clarify. So sometimes with doubt, it is really, really important just to recognize that it's going on. It's a very, uh, it's probably the most slippery and uh, seductive and subtle of the hindrances. Something uh, so uh, insidious about it can be. So just to recognize, ah, this is doubt. This is the hindrance of doubt going on. Really important. And then once you recognize it's like one can say, okay, I see that. It's the hindrance of doubt. I'm just going to finish this sitting. Just this sitting. Or I'm just going to finish this walking. And you postpone your engagement with with the doubt. And and say to yourself, I will think about this later. I will come back and think about it. And then actually do. Come back and think it through. Reflect it through. But in a way you're reassuring part of the being that you're not just abandoning something that actually needs attention. But just this one sitting, just this one walking, get through that. Sometimes doubt comes up for people because, how to put it, the practice hasn't been personalized. It hasn't, it hasn't been made meaningful to one's own heart. It's almost as if we're trying to fit something into this other mold, like what the teacher says, or what the Asian, or trying to be Asian or something. Um, And so to really ask, it's really, really important, very beautiful and deep question, what do I want from practice? What do I, not what I think I should get, or what I think I should be doing, or this or that, but what, here I am practicing, a lot of you here for a month, or however long, in my daily life too. What do I want from practice? And really get, having this relationship to practice of it being something very precious in, in a very personal way. So that practice becomes meaningful for me. I know why I'm practicing because this is what I want and I understand how this practice can um, open me to what I want, make available in my life what I want, what I deeply want, what the heart, the most... Uh, profound longing of the heart. What do I really want? And does it make sense to me that practice actually moves towards that? This is really, really important. That practice is personal for us. We've made it personal. It's juicy. It's juicy and meaningful to us. It's not something dry, other, alien. Okay. So I said before that there is a real continuum here of all the hindrances. We can talk about very, very gross kind of hindrances. You're really in a soup of something. It's really, you're submerged in something. You can, you know, very, very uh, kind of sense of overwhelm even. All of them uh, have, have a range to very, very subtle. So aversion, like I said. Also the two most common ones, this kind of sloth and torpor, dullness. Like the, the range, the spectrum of dullness. It's 
very can get very very subtle or the spectrum of restlessness can get very very subtle very subtle so there are some words that some people use for dullness as it's getting very subtle it's sinking it's sinking mind we're not falling asleep we're not yawning we're not any of that there's just something in the energy that's just a little bit sinking a little bit of kind of yeah dullness uh, or fuzziness creeps around the edges or drifting is the subtle form of restlessness. And this is an interesting one. It's not that we want to run up out of the meditation or we're checking our watch every five minutes, is it over yet, or anything like that. Or even that the mind is obsessed with a certain thought. It's rather that there just seems to be quite a lot of the mind slipping off at tangents on different thoughts. It's drifting off on different thoughts. So that level of subtlety... Um, what begins to be really interesting is the effort levels, that, uh, the, the, the kind of subtlety of the movement of effort in meditation, or the application of effort. Interestingly, sometimes our, our practice can just be a little bit out of balance in terms of we're just squeezing a little too hard, just a tiny bit. And funnily enough, its effect is that it actually causes more thinking and more of a tendency for the mind to kind of follow even a spontaneous image that comes up. It's like a random image might just pop into the head. And if there's just a little bit too much effort, paradoxically, the mind tends to get hooked to that image and and follow it, drifts off. So playing, very, very subtle part of the art, if we go back to that analogy, is just playing uh, with, with these effort levels. Sometimes it's the opposite of what we think think we need to make more effort and actually need to just back off a little bit. So a lot, a lot, a lot is available. And one of the things I really want to kind of stress in a general sense is the, the range of what's available in terms of the way we can work. So sometimes there's a real place for reflecting, bringing the reflective mind in for inquiry into what's going on. Sometimes what's really necessary is a kind of softening. You soften the energies. You soften the relationship with what's going on. Just soften, just relax, just open. Sometimes. Sometimes there's a real place for being firm with oneself. You're really kind of, okay, let's do this. And just cutting. One finds oneself uh, kind of indulging a little bit in, in an aversive kind of ill will tendency. Just cut it. Um, that has its place. Sometimes I said more effort is what's needed, sometimes less effort. I feel very strongly that what the most important thing is this quality of aliveness in practice. That moment to moment, minute to minute, sitting to sitting, walking to walking, there's this sense of the practice being something really alive. Like I said, it has some juice in it, it has some real sense of vitality in it. We can nurture that sense. We can really encourage it. Aliveness, vitality, juice is something that we can take care of. We can regard as as something that that we can nourish. So there can be this quality of playfulness in the practice. I actually think it's really, really important. Are we experimenting? Do we give ourselves permission? Do we feel the permission to, to play, to experiment in our practice, I try this, I try that. What if I did this? How would it be if, 
to explore. That that whole kind of curiosity and the movement and the freedom to experiment and try different things. Is that alive in us? In, in, in a pra- practicalized reality, you know, embedded reality, actually do I feel that alive? Or am I sitting down to practice thinking, now I've got to get this right, and I'm not exactly sure what right is, and I'm somehow sitting there in a straitjacket of... And it, it, it so much squeezes the, the joy and the aliveness out of practice. Again, this is our practice. It's personal. It's no, no one else's practice. And within certain parameters, but quite wide parameters, we can explore. We should explore. We should experiment. We should play. Play is such a good word. It's that sense of lightness, of freedom, of curiosity, of exploration, of aliveness. Is, can the practice have that quality of, of playfulness in it, experimentation? So there is really creativity. Now I've thrown out you know, a lot of these kind of standard formulas, try this, try that, try that. Sometimes that's exactly the ticket. But other times it's not the formula that works and it's not just a prescriptive formula for what works. What helps is this aliveness, this engagement, this um, you know, vitality. That's what's needed. So also, going back to what I said in terms of general general views of meditation, am I, as a practitioner, locked into one way of approaching meditation, or one way of seeing what meditation is? Am I locked into that? It's an important question. The Buddha uses this lovely word for the mind that's trained and the heart that's trained and the mind that has kind of, um, you know, learnt to work with the hindrances is malleable, malleable. So that's a result that when one's uh, freed oneself of the hindrances, the mind is left very malleable. Can do this, can do that, can look at things this way, can look at them that way, can try this, can let go of that, can da da da. The mind is very malleable, very agile. But that very malleability is also a factor that we need to kind of encourage to work with the difficulties. So is my practice, is my um, attitude to practice, is it malleable? Is it malleable? What does it mean to encourage that sense of malleability? Okay, so just to finish, I've given you some very... Uh, specific sort of approaches with the hindrances. But something perhaps even more important is something to say in terms of general approaches, and this applies to all of them. Three things. One is the importance of recognizing them, seeing them for what they are. Ah, this is doubt. Okay, this is the hindrance of aversion. All right, there's sloth and talk. Actually really recognizing that it's present. It makes a difference in terms of not being so sucked and caught in the vortex of what's going on, in the soup of what's going on. Recognition, crucial. The second piece, and this is general and it applies to all of them, is as much as possible seeing if I can not be taken for not be taken for a ride. That's what the hindrances do, is they take us for a ride, for the most part. They drag us along along a certain way of seeing ourselves and experience and others. 
seeing the world, a certain train of thinking, a certain pattern of energies, they drag us along. And is it possible to not be taken for a ride, particularly in terms of views and perceptions about what is going on and about what's going on in me and around me? One image I sometimes use for hindrances can be very helpful is as if there is, it's just an image, so, as if there is an almost constant sort of uh, fountain of seeds. The the, the being is um, throwing out this constant fountain of seeds of hindrances. Seeds, like a a sesame seed or a a seed. Yeah. Uh, So these seeds are, are, are being thrown out in a constant sort of fountain. And these seeds have little hooks on them. And the seeds come up and out and they're sort of looking for something to sink their teeth into, hook into, and then they start shaking it around. And they start making an issue out of something. So the seed of aversion is there, the seed of craving is there, the seed of restlessness is there. And it rises and it finds something to hook into and then it causes that thing, that issue, to grow and then to seem real. This is the thing when I said, don't, can I not be um, taken for a ride? It will seem in the middle of a hindrance storm that what is happening is a real thing. It's a real issue. This situation really is like that or whatever. So tempting, so seductive, so convincing. After a while, you just see this movement. The seeds come up. They've got these hooks, these teeth. They sink it into something. And then, and then they start shaking that thing, and it seems real. It seems convincing. One sees it enough times, and begin to lose the conviction in that process of real issues. And I'm not saying real issues don't exist, but just how much of what seems so real is actually this thing that an issue has been made as an issue and made to seem real. To recognize as much as possible, not get taken for a ride. The last one, to not take it personally that a hindrance is around. It's a human energy. It's an energy, they're energies that exist for human beings until we're fully liberated, until there's full enlightenment, they exist for us. And so not to judge ourselves. That uh, really compounds the thing. Just to be careful. Is it possible to just see it as a human energy? Why is this hindrance around? It's not that I'm a bad meditator. It's not that I'm a spiritual failure. It's not that dot, 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 dot. The hindrance is around. All it's saying is that I'm human and I'm not yet a Buddha. That's all it's saying. So as much as possible, kind of snipping off, cutting off this taking it personally, massively significant and applies to all of them. Very, very human. So we accept the fact that the hindrances arise. It's really okay that they arise, and we accept that. And and at the same time, we can work with them. There's uh, ways we can find of working with them.
just stop there. Um, Let's have a moment of silence, a few moments of silence together. But then I was thinking of, um, if anyone wants, uh, I'm happy to just stay behind. If there are any questions, and a lot of the interview spaces are full, so just if there are any questions at all about meditation practice so far, or anything I've said, or anything that's coming into your practice, maybe I'll stay in here now. And if you're not interested in that, feel very free to leave. But let's have a bit of silence right now. So do feel very free to leave and also very free to ask anything at all about practice if you if you would like. I'll repeat the question. Yeah. It often comes up in the post-lunch meditation, mm. and it's—I I label it slippery. It's where it's where my mind just sort of goes, 
this, this lid, and I call it like being, and I sort of say to myself, oh, it's icy. Uh-huh. And then I you know, say, okay, it's icy, you know, hold on to the hand, right? Okay. Yeah. And I've always thought that was a form of sloppy torture. Yeah. It sounds as if you're saying that's restlessness. Yeah, yeah, good. So uh, Nina's saying, particularly in the sitting after lunch, the post-lunch sitting, uh, it's relatively common for her to have this sense of the mind being very slippery and slipping off into something, and she's calling it kind of icy. And she assumes that that's a kind of manifestation of sloth and torpor, and uh, is it possibly restlessness? What does it slip into, does it feel? What is it when it's... Yeah. Just thoughts and just sort of yeah. Just sort of, but it, you know, like you can't quite stay sharp on the yeah. concentration. Suddenly you're sort of just slipping into murk. Okay. It's not yeah. specific. Yeah, okay. So, uh, slipping into murk. It could be both a manifestation of sloth and torpor or, or restlessness. Sometimes, weirdly, you get um, what's sometimes called multiple hindrance attacks. Uh, where <laughs> in the in the um, language, so um, where, where actually t- two things are going on at once. If it, if you think about what the mind does when it goes to sleep, it has this kind of. If you if you're aware as you go to sleep, the different images come up, and then the mind kind of follows one and goes into a bit of a dream kind of scenario or daydream. Um, so it can be that too. It is a kind of sloth and torpor, and it's it's sinking into this kind of murk and kind of um, following that. Again, what I would say is play with it. So try um, try doing something that's really invigorating and see, see what effect that has. Um, but it may also be that it's, it is a form of restlessness, that the mind is actually, you're just squeezing a bit too tight, maybe because you're tired a little bit, and then you squeeze, it's very subtle, just a little bit too tight, and it's almost like that squeezing causes the mind to go off onto these tangents you understand it's worth playing with um, and just playing with uh, a bit a bit more a bit less um, playing with actually do, doing a little bit can only be 10 minutes even of something that's invigorating like breathing or opening the eyes and really getting a sense of invigoration and then going going back to it or something in the meditation that's actually uh, helping some sense of brightness or playing with backing off so just having the sense of well it could be either or both and, and feeling free to experiment and the other thing about the sitting after lunch is that if your schedule can accommodate it for some people really really skillful to take a little nap after lunch I don't know if you can but uh, just to lie down for anywhere between 10 minutes and sort of you know not certainly not more than 35 or 40 minutes um, but that, and even if you don't go to sleep, can be really, really helpful. That when you go to the next sitting, there's just a sense of brightness. Instead of uh, oftentimes just battling that kind of uh, mind, um, can can be very helpful. Does that? Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, John. Yeah. that you want to devote uh, some time during the November solitary to concentration practice yeah. or you want to devote some time to uh, loving kindness practice one form or another um, 
deviating in the sense of uh, of moving towards uh, meditation as doing. Uh, let's say that you you um, you don't do either of those two things I mentioned, and you just uh, sit with a very open mind, and you don't um, you don't choose anything to focus on in particular. Mm -hmm. Does that mean then that you are doing The alternatives to how one's seeing. The, yes, the I mean, the, 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 the possibilities are, are huge, you know. Uh, the possibilities in terms of what you actually do on the cushion, in terms of what practice, they're huge. Um, also, the, the, the kinds of different views that we might have of meditation are also huge. And I was just picking out, like, one in particular around the notion of doing itself. So, for some people, meditation is clearly a doing. I'm sitting here, I am doing concentration on the breath. There's a real sense of doing, or I'm doing the meta practice. May you be, may you be, may you be, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so that's fine. That's one view. Another view is actually meditation as a kind of non-doing. And both, uh, partly what I was saying is both of these are valid and both of these are beautiful. But actually to be aware of what, uh, what is around the views and what goes on there. I was not clear in what you were saying is um, uh, what is meditation as non-doing? What does it involve? Um, well, that's the other question. It, it involves quite a bit of doing. But <laughs> <laughs> a person sitting down and not trying to uh, change anything in any way or direct anything in any way or shape the experience towards anything in any way. So it's almost like letting everything be there, just letting everything be there in a sense of spaciousness, um, not moving towards any particular experience or encouraging anything particular, not having a sense of, of uh, uh, that. Um, and that's it, sort of where one might start. But what one then notices, and this, this is where it gets more subtle and qu quite important to pick up on the subtlety, is that there is... Doing is something extremely subtle. So it can seem that one's not doing anything, but actually what one picks up on, if one does that practice with a lot of interest and a lot of sort of integrity, what one will realize is that the mind is doing quite a lot, even if I say I'm not going to do anything. It's doing a lot. And the art in that sense is more than to pick up on these subtle movements of doing and just see which of them can I just... Uh, not do. So if I just say I'm not going to do anything, I'll just sit here and I won't do anything. If I'm honest and I'm, I'm actually aware in that space, there'll be a certain amount of non-doing, but I will pick up on some other level of doing. And then it's possible I can actually let go of that doing, etc. And the whole thing can get more and more subtle. Does this make sense? No. So this is a sort of a choiceless type of awareness. Well, choiceless awareness is, is something that people use in di in, with different meanings. So it's a kind of choiceless awareness practice. Sometimes, for some people, what choiceless awareness means, means one's sitting and whatever the most prominent thing in consciousness is, like right now I have a pain here, so that's where the awareness goes. I just let the awareness go there. 
uh, and then that subsides, whatever, and then I have some emotion, and I go and investigate the emotion. So that the mind is actually moving between these different things, and but there is not so much. It's letting the mind move between things, rather than directing it. But it's moving between different things. Another way of uh, that people use the word choiceless awareness is just letting everything be together in a space of awareness. Just letting it belong to that space. Just letting it be. Not trying to manipulate it in any way. So there's more a sense of paying attention to a totality of experience rather than moving between. Um, And in a way... Well, I mean, we could talk about this all day, but but does that make sense? Is that clear? Yeah? That is... uh a lot more can be said about that, but it's very clear. It's okay, so all right. Yeah. Good. Okay. Uh, Douglas, yeah. It's uh, a similar point, but mm. you mentioned uh, meditation as an art form. Yeah. And then you went on to the other method of just being. But you mentioned the word skills. Mm. Well, I thought, oh, no, I'm going <laughs> Now, the skills you're talking about, and the definite skills in getting rid of the. Uh, Um, I'm, I, when I first said the word I meant it in a much broader way much, so this working with the hindrances in particular ways is a kind of subset of, of the whole the whole package of so skills I ask, well, perhaps it's another talk but what are those skills? oh, pff, how long have you got? in a nutshell you, I mean this is just off the top of my head I'm going to say something in a nutshell you could say the skills are developing what's beautiful and helpful and letting go of anything that gives rise to suffering. You could see it's two two sides of skills. So in the letting go camp, that can be something as gross as here is a massive hindrance attack, and how how can I let go of it? And developing a skill, letting go of this big, you know, attack of aversion. That's a, a skill. Okay. But it could be like you and I had an interview the other day, and you were talking about inquiring into this self, not self business. And you say, looking at your garden as just the garden and not my garden. Okay, That's a skill, I would say, that's developable. We can develop the skill to look at things outside and inside and see them as not, not me, not mine. That's a skill that's developable. And, it's, and again, it has a whole range of subtlety, a whole range of... Um, yeah, subtlety. Does that make sense? So, um, for someone to... Let's take a country. For someone to look at their country, uh, for some people, it's very hard to just see it as a country and not my country and my da-da-da and whole nationalism, etc. It might be a skill for that person to be able to look at the country and see, I can see it's my country, but I can also see it's not my country. It's just a convention. Are you following this? Um, so there's a skill there, but it can get more and more subtle. What would it be to be able to do that with the garden? What would it be able be to be able to do that with your body? So you have a sense this body is is not not me and not mine, and I'm then free in relationship to it. What would it be to be able to do that with in relationship to the emotions, to the thoughts? What would it be to be able to do that in relationship to awareness? You know, so it gets much more subtle. But basically, it's a it's a movement of developing skill. 
But it's so, to me, it's so lovely and delicate that skill doesn't really do justice to it. It's a craft. And I guess the word art also means that a lot of intuition can come into it as well. But um, so anything that's letting go is, you know, we can develop skills in doing that. I'm really aware that people hearing that can then sound very, it can feel very overwhelming. It's like, oh, well, there's this and there's this, and blah, 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 help, you know, kind of thing. The beautiful thing is that as you let go a little bit, you get a little bit of peace. You know, so it's not like you're waiting for the rewards when you've so, when finally when I'm Michelangelo, I feel good about my painting. You know, it's not like that. It's uh, you, you let go a little bit, and there's a little bit of peace, and and that gives you the sense of uh, reassurance. So if we go back to what John was asking, this sense of kind of resting in an open awareness, and I'll I'll explore non-doing and letting go. Well, the skill there actually still comes in in terms of becoming sensitive to the more subtle levels of doing in the mind and they're extremely subtle that there is a kind of subtle doing going on and we can uh, tease them out and let go of them and let go of them so still under the umbrella of non-doing there's a skill and sensitivity involved does that make sense? Yeah. No, I didn't just mean the hindrances. No, it's it's a massive subject. And remember, it's just one way of approaching meditation, of, of viewing meditation. But yeah, it's but it's massive. Yeah. Yes. What's your name? Amber. Amber yeah. Mm, that's an interesting one, yes. Um, uh, so, say something about jealousy and whether that comes under the category of a hindrance or, or something else. Um, I guess it's a, f- it's a kind of craving and it's also, it might have a little bit of aversion mixed up with it. Do you, I mean, what's your, what's your experience? Do you feel that there can be some aversion when there's jealousy? Um, do you want to say a little bit of what it's about? You don't have to, but, or an example of what you might be. You don't have to, but just... Um, for example, about my partner spending time with other women. Okay. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, so th- this is where, um, you know, we have to look at a situation and think, what would be helpful in this situation? So sometimes we get, as meditators, we get the sense of what I really need to do, whatever the situation is, plonk myself on the cushion and, and meditate on it and somehow let go here and, and there's, the, there's the thing. But, you know, this would be a long conversation, but it may very well be that there's something in communication with your partner that needs, that, you know, uh, you need to say something, he, needs, he or she needs to say something about, uh, he needs to say something to you about what's... Um, you know, a reassurance, that you actually need a reassurance in the communication. In other words, it's not just here. So you have to look at the whole thing. So what level of approaching this is the most appropriate? Which angle of approach? Um, Is it that there's been something in the past, either in your past alone or in your combined past or his past, that 
leads to that? And if so, do we need to talk about the past in a way that kind of clears it so the present is more clear? Is there a kind of reassurance that he needs to give you? Is it the fact that you need to work with those emotions on an emotional level? You know, there's lots of... I don't know that there's a formula again. I mean, what I was going to say in a more general sense about jealousy, which may or may not be appropriate for this, is a lot of it has to do with what I was talking about, nourishment. And when gradually, slowly over time with practice, there is enough sense of inner nourishment, it really does begin to kind of relativize our neediness in relationship to other things. So, you know, you do a lot of meta practice, or you do a lot of whatever, and, and there begins, the heart begins to get filled up with loveliness. That makes a huge difference. And it's not a, you know, even linear progression, but over time that really begins to make a difference. Rather than putting all our hopes in relationship to letting go in in the camp of, I just need to be aware of it, I just need to be aware of it, sometimes that will be enough. Sometimes it's as if we don't have enough in the bank. You know, we don't have enough kind of weight from which to let, enough reservoir from which to let go from. You, you understand? So generally speaking about jealousy, that that's huge. I mean, it just feels like yeah, there's an abundance, you know, and that, that comes slowly, but for me that's definitely a part of what practice is about, is o- opening us up to that reservoir of, of abundance, you know. Uh, some people really don't like looking at practice that way, but I, I, I tend to feel more and more that it's really significant. In that situation that you're describing, it might be something much more practical that needs to get communicated or talked through, with, I don't know. Yeah. It feels like jealousy is a bit like that. Sometimes, you know, the mind just moves in habitual ways. These seeds are just like habits. They come out as a habit to hook into something. And it might be a habit for it to come out in this particular way and see a situation, see it in these particular terms. Spending time with that other woman, therefore jealousy. You know, and there's a kind of habitual train there. And um I'm not sure what the answer is, but I know that there is an approach there that that can kind of unhook some of that habit. Uh, We'd probably have to talk more about the whole thing, but I'm not sure if that's helpful. Um, Yeah? Okay. Probably to talk more in detail about the actual thing, but yeah. Whenever there's a problem, it's usually being fed by more than one thing. That's the interesting thing. So it's partly just that it's a habit, it's partly that there's something that needs talking through, it's partly that there's not enough inner nourishment yet. And, you know, it can be all, all those pieces together. Uh, yeah, so Joe, yeah. I just I liked your, your, um, your point about pain. Yeah. I think most people do, yeah. Would the criteria simply be then that if it seems to be helpful, yes. it's okay? Yeah. In the, and then just, um, just over today, something called I'm Missing Images. Um, I, I started the Tibetan tradition of yeah. all those very complex mm. visualizations, mm. which at the end I found unhelpful. But I suddenly remembered a visualization which was just seeing light mm-hmm. and nectar dropping as a way of feeling yeah. compassion. 
Yes, beautiful. And did that again, and it um, could yeah. revive that feeling of love and compassion in a way that words haven't done for yeah. me. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, go for it. Really go for it. Um, in this tradition, the, the emphasis is really to steer away from imagery, etc., because the emphasis has been being with things as they are. I actually think that's a bit of that's a whole other subject. Maybe we'll get to this on, on that on this retreat. But that's actually a whole bit of a misnomer: things as they are, and this kind of idea of bare attention. Um, the other day, I was talking with someone who's a bit of a scholar, and she said she'd gone to this lecture. And a whole bunch of ancient Buddhist sutras had been found. Uh, the um, mindfulness of breathing, you know, classic mindfulness of breathing, very sort of simple like this, was found with the visualization. So I breathe in blue light. You know, uh, he, he, she breathes in blue light, calming the mind. Breathes out, you know, green light, calming. All that stuff. So it was actually there, but it's kind of been lost. I would say play with it. Uh, so, particularly if you're doing compassion practice or just wanting some compassion to come in in a moment, um, the mind is very suggestible and malleable, as I said, and take advantage of that. Play with that. You're opening up certain energies for the sake of what's helpful. You know, there's also something to be said about enjoying your meditation. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, why, why should we not enjoy our meditation? You know, um, and that—that's actually an art to learn to really enjoy the meditation. So, but yeah, the bottom line criteria is what feels helpful, really, absolutely. So, really, go for it. You know, yeah. Is that Lisa? Yeah. Um, I've been. Um, I came to the conclusion at some point that um, practicing Yeah, good. That, yeah. Um, I hopped around too much. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've been working more with concentration or, or, or at least with a, um, trying to stay with an anchor like, like breathing and not. And when, I, and when something else comes, I just come back to the breath instead of going with yeah. and, and I struggle with it because it doesn't feel fruitful. Mm. This is very important. <laughs> very important. You're not alone in that. And this is a really, really important question. I mean, what to say? You know, mindfulness of breathing, to develop that as the skill, the craft, the art of that, that's hard. That's a, that, I, I view that as a lifetime's work. I've got one teacher, and I've got one teacher who, who emphasizes that as a real lifetime. You know, you can really, really do it. It's hard to develop that. That's saying that on one side. On the other side is that, first of all, given the choice of everything that you can do in practice, um, I would say to see if you can find something that feels interesting to you to explore, but also feels helpful. Okay, so not just to choose. Oh, I think I should be with the breath. You know, beware of that word "should." Really, to beware of it. Um, now, it may be that you decide actually I really am interested in developing a kind of more steadiness of the mind, etc., then, well, it may be the breath that does it for you. It may be something else that does it for you. And that's something that you can bring up in an interview because there are other objects apart from the breath. 
And even then on top of that, it's a matter of, it really is an art. And finding the way, let's say you decide it's the breath, finding a way of doing it that actually has some juice in it for you. And you do, despite it being difficult, you do begin to get this sense of, actually, I'm getting some fruit from this. I, I, do, I do actually enjoy it. And there is a sense of, you know, without measuring and without ego judging and all that, there is a sense of, like, it being fruitful, progressing with it. So that may take some tweaking, you know, with, with one of us in terms of, oh, should I go about it this way or this way or even within what you're doing, a little bit more of this, a little bit, you know, that's all part of it. Um, if you want as well, you can think of your practice on this retreat as having two practices. So you've got this sort of moving between different things that seem like they need attention, you know, this. Um, and, but when the mind feels too kind of all over the place, you bring it back to something which could be the breath, or it could be matter, or it could be whatever, uh, or just the body sensations that feels more grounding. And then you you collect and you go out, and you collect and you go out, and you just you're just playing with that. You know, you're 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 free to move between the two, and that that might also help. Yeah, but it sounds like something that needs a bit more talking. You know, to 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 tweak the practice a little bit. Yeah, is that okay? Any last orders? Yeah, Ravi. Um, where does lacking come in in terms of hindrances? Where does sense of lacking or sense of or lack of self worth or lack yeah. of stuff? Yeah. Where does that come in? Um, that's coming up and you're, you're, is, it, is, it, is it a hindrance you're asking? Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, it could be, I mean, be doubt, it could be aversion as well. I mean, it, sometimes it's not necessary to... Well, sometimes it helps seeing it as a hindrance. That's actually that's a good point, actually. It's sometimes, here's all this self-worth stuff. And again, you're, to know you're really not alone in that. I think it's the biggest factor in Western Dharma, is person having the sense of not being good enough and not being, you know, lacking something in themselves or in their practice. It's the biggest factor uh, that's around in Western. That's not to say that everyone has it, or, but it's really, really, you know, you're not alone with it. And <clears throat> sometimes just to see it in different terms as a hindrance, ah, oh, there's just some aversion and some doubt come together and made this. Sometimes that's helpful. Other times just see it as what you're calling it, you know, uh, sometimes I give it the name the inner critic or the self-judge or, or whatever. And actually seeing it as that and then finding ways to work with that. That's really important to, to address that in the practice. And again, it's something that we can talk about um, it has so much clout and authority, it can have so much clout and authority, it can really uh, throw a spanner in the works. So it's simple, but, but maybe bring it up um, with one of us, yeah, or with me, basically, yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Okie doke. Um, let's just have another minute of silence together and then we'll end. <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.